To our new passengers, aloha and welcome. As you board, please move across your car to make room for everyone, and kindly offer available seating to those needing special assistance. The show will begin momentarily. Thank you. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. Welcome to Dave's Disney View Podcast, provided on our own version of the information highway in the sky. For those of you standing, please hold on to the handrails throughout our journey and stay clear of the doors. For the comfort of others, no smoking please. Thank you. Dave's Disney View is a look at the Walt Disney World Resort and sometimes beyond, as seen through the eyes of Dave, a frequent visitor, a one-time cast member, and an engineer who simply enjoys the magic and wonder of it all. Now, please keep your party together and put on your virtual mouse ears. And by all means, enjoy the show. Hi everyone, it's Dave with another Dave's Disney View podcast. On this week's show, I'd like to take a look at the iconic structure in Epcot that we all know and love, Spaceship Earth. Back in the late 1970s, Disney announced plans to create what they said would be Walt's vision. We know today that that's not exactly true, but at the time, to me, it was really exciting. There was going to be some really cool technology and some intriguing ideas that would come to fruition. I remember the hype, but more than that, I remember the geodesic sphere that was rising off in the distance that kind of symbolized Epcot. And there was one day when we were staying at Fort Wilderness and we traveled along the road kind of near Epcot, and here was the giant golf ball nearing completion. And I was in awe. It was just one of those incredible things. So today, let's take a look back at the structure, the attraction, and the history of the centerpiece to Epcot. So let's begin at the beginning and consider Epcot's future world on the whole. The objective of the Imagineers was to create pavilions that celebrated various concepts from, around the, from the world around us, and they would include the land, imagination, energy, motion, technology, the future, and communications. It needed a centerpiece, and the Imagineers had this general concept that they wanted to create a giant globe, an almost Earth-like structure to be the centerpiece and represent communications because you'd have communications around the globe. The problem would be that most engineers and architects will tell you that building a sphere in three-dimensional space is really no easy task, and to that point had been mostly considered impossible. But the Imagineers are something else. As always, Imagineers have a way of making the impossible come to life, and in this case it's no exception. Now, historically, if we look back at the history of what the uh, geodesic sphere is, we can realize that after World War I, a man named Carl Zeiss, who worked for an, as an engineer for an optical company, was looking for a new, new means to project his own invention, a planetarium, onto a screen. And he had this idea to create like a dome building in order to put the uh, planetarium up on the, on the ceiling. Now, we know that today as being something that you expect to see. But at that point in time, right after World War I, this was a truly new novel concept. He had this really cool idea, and he was trying to make it work. So he created a semicircular roof or a dome to uh, be able to put on top of a building that then he could display his projections on. It was a really cool idea, and it worked out pretty well. 
And about 20 years later, an engineer, an architect, an inventor, a very Renaissance man of a sort, by the name of R. Buckminster Fuller, came up with the idea to improve upon that design and came up with something called a geodesic dome. Now, his design allowed for the weight to be evenly distributed using these triangle-shaped pieces to create the dome. Now, more to the point, these are called icosahedrons. Now, I know it's a little bit of a technical term, but just remember that they're shapes that have 20 identical triangular faces on them. So you're creating a piece that's got 20 triangles on it that then you can put together with other pieces to make the dome. Now, the design is exceptionally strong and distributes its weight very well. It's stable and provides for the maximum space inside the, the uh, dome that you create. Plus, the final product could have a skin placed over the outside of it that would cover it and give it some texture and make it look a little bit different than, they, than what it might look like with just the triangles on it. So, he had created a couple of those, and half the dome had been done. But there was still no apparent way to do a sphere. The Imagineers engaged many of the best and brightest minds in looking at this concept and trying to figure out if there was a possibility of doing this. The final design is credited to the Imagineers, and if you can believe this, Ray Bradbury, the science fiction writer. Apparently, Bradbury had worked with the Imagineers to come up with the conceptual model of how they could do it in order to make it structurally sound. And I think his science fiction writing had kind of helped him to conceptualize a couple of things that made it feel a little bit different. Now, how do they actually do this? This is where it gets kind of neat, and the engineering comes into play. What they did, uh, they actually created a steel box shape, and they supported it with six legs that went down into the ground. So they essentially created something that was, that was square uh, out of steel, and they supported that. So what they did was, then they created a dome on the top portion of that steel box. So you've got a dome that's exactly like the one that Bunkbenster Fuller had come up with on the top part of it. Then they turned around and they created an inverse dome, or a, a, an upside-down dome, on the bottom part and attached it to the steel on the bottom. So in effect, what they had done was created something that was two domes, not really a sphere, but it's a really neat trick that makes it look like a sphere. Now... The reality is, it's not really a sphere either. The design they decided on is a dodecahedron, which is really a 12-sided object. It appears to be round because of the shape of the icosahedrons, those triangular-shaped pieces, that are attached to the outside frame. The icosahedrons have a shape that isn't quite flat, so the net result is the irregular protrusions, or the things that stick out, give the overall appearance of it making it look round. Now, as an engineer... I have to say that what they did was extremely clever. On the surface of the dome, they added flat steel panels with the triangles attached to the outer surface to make the patterns that you see on it today. In the end, what you have were 11,520 triangles visible. Well, actually, it's less than that because of the supports and the way they go through there, but it's about 11,300 that appear on there. The triangles you see are made of an aluminum material that's bonded with a polymer and takes the uh, copyrighted name of Aluka Bond, or Aluminum Composite Bond. And they took the design a step further, adding troughs, or little gaps, in between the uh, actual triangles that allows water to flow off of the structure into a gutter system and then carries that water out into the World Showcase Lagoon. And that's why, when it rains, you never see water like flowing off the sides of the, of the uh, sphere. It just goes off and goes into these troughs and gets carried out. Now, 
because the de design that they came up with allows for the largest amount of space inside that's possible, there's still plenty of space inside for the uh, maintenance workers, for the components of the show, for all of the things to happen. And they actually constructed an inner steel frame uh, with the, um, that's, that follows the same dome structure that then they can attach everything to. It's very, very clever. And I have to say, in a word, if I were to use one word to sum it up, it's remarkable. Now, here's a little tip for you, a little piece of information. Though people sometimes call it a golf ball, and I did myself, it's really not that at all. If you think about a golf ball, that's a sphere with indentations that cause it to fly through the air with little resistance. This object has, actually has protrusions, or things that stick out, instead of um, having indentations in it. While it may appear to be similar because of the irregularities on the surface, it's really not. So a golf ball is sort of a misnomer for it. Anyway, as far as the uh, design goes, they pushed on in the design, they got most of it done, but they still had to decide what to call it. And for that, they turned back to Buckminster Fuller for inspiration. He had published the Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth back in 1968. At the heart of it, he was talking about a worldview that expressed concern over the use of limited resources available on Earth and the behavior of everyone on it to act as a harmonious crew working toward the greater good. And so they came up with a name, Spaceship Earth, and it stuck with it, and that's the name we call it today. Now let's talk about some of the fun facts about the attraction. The geosphere itself is 180 feet in height. At its lowest point, it stands 18 feet off the ground. It encompasses about 2.2 million cubic feet of space and has an outside surface of 150,000 square feet. Its six legs are supported uh, by pylons sunk 120 to 185 feet into the ground. It weighs 15.5 million pounds, about three times more than the space shuttle, fully fueled and ready for launch. It took 1,700 tons of steel in 26 months to build the sphere. Now, if Space Earth were a golf ball, the person playing golf with it would have to have been approximately 1.2 miles tall to be in the right scale. The hole would have, have, to, have to have been 417 feet in diameter, and if the person was playing on the equivalent of a 200-yard hole, it would have been about 135 miles long, or approximately the width of Florida. Oh, and, like most attractions in Future World, there's a VIP lounge that's built into the second floor of the attraction. So, for different people who worked for it, the uh, hosted, host of the attractions, so that would have been AT&T and Siemens along the way, they had a place to go to be able to uh, have a little relaxation and kind of take it in and have some special meetings when they were at the parks. And this is typical of most attractions that are in uh, Epcot. Around World Showcase and in Future World, you'll find that there are VIP lounges that are embedded in all of them. Now, the ride itself was intended to be a show on how communication has evolved through the ages. Disney contacted historians, TV producers, art and history scholars, and others to help them provide accuracy in the attraction and make sure that it provided for the maximum show and really gave the right visual impression to the guests. Now, to many people, that level of detail is lost. And some might ask, why bother? But that's the hallmark of Disney, creating something more than you might expect and putting it above and beyond what you would expect to see. Now, as we look at the ride itself, the ride covers some general topics as we ride through it. It talks about the prehistoric caveman, the woolly mammoth. Then it talks about cavemen, the Egyptian temple, moving on to Phoenician merchants, Greek plays, the Roman roads, Rome burns, the Jewish and Arab scholars, the Cathedral Abbey, the Gutenberg Press, Renaissance players and artists, 
the Sistine Chapel, the Steam Press, the Telegraph, the Telephone, Radio, Cinema, and Television and the Moon Landing. And then it went into the future. Now, the future part has changed dramatically over the years. Since 1982, clearly communications have changed dramatically, so the show has changed. Now, certain parts of it became the historical part that you know today, and you see it on the ride, the attraction itself as you're going through. It kind of continues on the storyline as a historical piece, and the future keeps growing and, and building on different pieces. Now, I mentioned that there were scholars and other people brought in to provide some input into the attraction itself. So, if we look at the specifics in the attraction, we can see that there are some very detailed elements that are there. For example, the hieroglyphs on the walls in the ancient Egyptian scene are authentic recreations of actual graphics. The words being dictated by the pharaoh were taken from an actual letter sent by the pharaoh to one of his agents. The actor in the Greek theater scene is delivering lines from, from Sophocles' Oedipus Rex. In the scene depicting the fall of Rome, the graffiti re reproduces markings from the walls of Pompeii. And then in the Islamic scene, the quadrant, an instrument used in astronomy and navigation, is a copy of one from the 10th century. The page of the Bible that Johann Gutenberg is uh, examining is an exact replica of a page of the Gutenberg Bible on display in the Huntington Library in San Marino, California. In the Renaissance scene, the book being read is Virgil's Aeneid, and the musical instruments are a lute and a lira di braccio. Both of those instruments are replicas of real period pieces. And there's a lot more, too, but that gives you a sense of the kind of detail that goes in to making this production work. Now, the attraction show music was done by Ido Guidati. The capacity of the show is uh, 2,895 passengers per hour. The show time is 11 minutes and 46 seconds, and the cycle time is 12 minutes and 51 seconds. The type of ride system is an Omnimover with Wedway Traction Drive. There are the maximum number of vehicles they can have is 154, but they can take some out if they need to or cover them. Uh, if they need to replace them, they have four spare vehicles they can put in there. There are four seats per vehicle, and there are uh, two vehicles per train and 77 trains as you go through it. The ride length is 1,552 feet, and the ride speed on average is about 1.8 feet per second. The dispatch interval is about 11 and a half seconds that the uh, trains go out. And then, of course, there's a turntable uh, that you get loaded from. The queue capacity is about 750 people, but because it's a continuously moving uh, attraction, you don't really wait in line very long. Uh, you're able to walk right up and pretty much get on most times. Now, this was an original uh, opening day attraction. Uh, back in 1982, this was a working attraction, and it had a show sequence that went along with it. And some people said it felt a little bit incomplete. And we'll probably talk about that in a future podcast, but kind of keep in mind that it was, it was at a certain point. Disney had been working on this for a long time and wanted to be ready for park opening. And thinking about the fact that this would probably grow and change over time because it's about the past and the future of communications, it kind of made sense that there were some potential gaps in the storyline, particularly at the end. Now, as for the host, the narrator of Spaceship Earth, there's been some discussion about who was the original person. Most fans seem to believe that the voice of the original Spaceship Earth narrator was Vic Perrin, an actor who did many voiceovers, and was the control voice on the Outer Limits TV show. We will control the vertical. 
we can change the focus to a soft blur or sharpen it to crystal clarity. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind to the outer limits. However, Disney Imagineer Marty Sklar did an interview saying that he didn't understand why everyone said the narrator was Vic Perrin. It was actually another actor named Larry Dobkin. Larry was actually a, a person who had done many, many radio shows uh, over the years. And now, tonight's presentation of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Tonight, the story of tension and danger in a small inn on the avalanche-swept slopes of the Alps. We call it Premonition. So now, starring Lawrence Dobkin with Charlotte Lawrence, here is tonight's suspense play, Premonition. And I'll admit, the two gentlemen do sound an awful lot alike. So it's possible it could be Perrin, though I do believe, Marty Scalar, that it's uh, Dobkin. To make things more confusing, there are conflicting reports that there was another narrator after the first one, but before the ride was rehabbed in May of 1986 with the narration by Walter Cronkite. The original Spaceship Earth narration starts with the phrase, where have we come from? Where are we going? Prevailing wisdom seems to suggest that this is a reference to where do we come from, what are we, and where are we going? One of the largest and most well-known paintings by Paul Gauguin. I'm going to put a link to this painting on my show notes so you can see what it looks like and kind of decide for yourself. It's a reasonable explanation of the history of communications as we ride on Spaceship Earth, so it makes sense in context that that may actually be why it went that way. Now, I'd like to play for you the audio from that original ride. Now, it's a, the audio is a little weak because it's an old recording from 1982 or three maybe, and uh, you can, it's kind of hard to pick out some of, the, uh, some of the sounds and what the narrator is saying, but I think you'll enjoy it. Where have we come from? Where are we going? The answers begin in our past, in the dust from which we were formed. Answers recorded on the walls of time. So let us journey into that past to seek those walls, to know ourselves and to probe the destiny of our spaceship Earth.
describe our greatest client, a growing record of our deeds to share with others, so they too may meet tomorrow's sun. Ages pass, and more walls rise in the valley of the night. Man-made walls. Then with new symbols, we unlock our thoughts from chiseled walls and send them forth on papyrus school.
is a time guiding us to a new period, a time of invention and exploding communication.
enjoyed this look at an attraction that seems to never get the love it deserves. People kind of overlook it and walk past it thinking about some other things they may want to see, but I think this attraction is really cool and it's kind of grown over time. And on future podcasts, I'm going to play some of the other audio and tell some more stories about it. But I hope you enjoyed this. So I'm Dave, and remember, if we can dream it, we really can do it. Just ask the Imagineers. From all of us, Thanks for taking a listen to the podcast today. If you're standing, please hold onto the handrails and stay clear of the doors until the show stops completely and the doors open. Ladies and gentlemen, please collect your personal belongings, watch your head and step, and take small children by the hand. As this concludes our journey, we hope that you enjoyed the show and that you drive home safely. Our thanks go to Doug at geekacres.net for his contributions to the show. And also to Craig for the original music you hear on the show. You can find Craig's music 
over at ReverbNation.com slash sound A. If you have questions, comments, or thoughts about the show, please feel free to contact Dave at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Show notes and links to other great content on the web can be found at disneypodcast.net. Now, I will raise the safety bar, and a podcaster will follow you home. Ha 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 